0: Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Hey everybody, what's going on? I see more and more of us are back in person. Oma what? That's right. Welcome to CBC. If you're joining us online, thanks for joining us today. Before we dive into what's going to be a life-changing sermon on fasting that everybody's really ready for, you laugh and it does not do well for my self-confidence. Got a couple things on church business I want to touch on. Each January, our leadership gets together. If you don't know, we have a deacon board and an elder board, different functions, and they are the leadership body of our church, and the elder board elects new uh, positions on the elder board, same people. We just shift around the role so that everybody can experience the joy of leading meetings, okay? And Pete Peterson has been our chairman for the last couple years, and he's going to stay on the board, step out of the chairman role, and Dave Hudsmith is going to step into the chairman role. So all of your complaints now shift from Pete to Dave. He's excited for that. Uh, But again, same board, same great group of guys. You can check out the website, some awkward family photos of like the yearbook turn and smile of the elder board. And then two, we have a new deacon that is being nominated. So at CBC and most churches, there are two different places in scriptures where we find qualifications for elders and deacons. And that's going to be in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. You can go and read them. But it just says that these guys embody the ways and rhythms of Jesus, not perfect, but they seek to put Christ in his ways first in their life. And how they manage their family, and how they manage their business, and how they manage their spiritual life, those all three things are connected. And so after thinking and praying about people to join, we are nominating Danny Sanabria to the deacon board, I don't know if you know him. He is a fantastic man. He's not here this morning, so I can't make fun of him to his face. Uh, if he was, I would, but it's gossip if he's not, so I'm not going to. And uh, now he, he's a great guy. So we have 30 days. If if you seriously, if you guys know of a way that he doesn't reflect the ways and rhythms of Jesus, let us know. It'll start a conversation. Uh, but we want our leadership to reflect the things that we believe. And we're excited for him to join the board, and we're excited for him to help lead us and, and, and help us be Jesus in our community. So a little bit of family update. Any questions, you can email me or any of the elders or the deacons, okay? Before we dive in this morning, if you're new to CBC, we do a thing every time we get together. And, and, and we acknowledge the culture we come from, and we acknowledge the character and culture that Jesus is building within us that hopefully spills out into our world And we come from a culture that is incredibly critical. We come from a culture that is incredibly me-centered. We come from a culture that wants to rip things down so that we might build us up. And this morning, we put that aside. And we come to this space knowing full well that God is here, knowing that when we open the scriptures, we get to see the goodness of God, like catapult from the pages of his word, and knowing that he's going to speak to us. And so instead of entering with a critical spirit, we ask this question this morning, Holy Spirit, what do you have for me today? How are you speaking through the scriptures to me? So we're just going to take a second and we're going to pray. I'm going to ask that you pray if you're comfortable and ask the spirit to speak to you this morning and that you pray for me before we dive in. So join me. God, I'm thankful that we can be here. There are so many good things to do on Sunday morning. I'm thankful that we can join in a bunch of other people and recognize and champion that God is the best good. I pray this morning as we talk about a discipline, a practice of fasting, that it informs us as to why why looking more Christ-likeness is essential for people that say Christ is their Lord. Holy Spirit, speak to us through the principle of fasting this morning. If you're comfortable, I, I just ask that you take a couple seconds and say a silent prayer and ask that you might be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leadings this morning as we speak, as he speaks through the scriptures. And ask that you pray for me. That you might not see a person and a message, but you might see the goodness of God through what I say in my preparation and, and, and the scriptures that we go to together this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said. Amen. All right, so last week we started this chat on fasting and I kind of started by telling you of a new rhythm I'm trying to institute in my life. It's simply put, for the first time since I was 12, I'm trying very hard to have a bedtime. And my bedtime now is 11 p.m. That's really good for me. I want to have a bedtime because as a parent of young kids, we have this tension between I can stay up later and enjoy what life used to be like before kids while they're sleeping and sit in that freedom and sacrifice my mood in the morning, right? And so I thought for the first time, I'm going to try to value rest. And so at 11 o'clock each night this week, I'm like, I'm turning it off. I'm I'm getting in bed and I'm trying to go to sleep. And guys, let me tell you something. It's been magical. I mean, I've really, I'm sleeping from 11 and I get up at 6 a.m. And I have really, really enjoyed it. And it made me think, why didn't I do this earlier? Here's the deal. I keep coming back to this phrase that Augustine said. Augustine is a church father. He'd be on the Mount Rushmore of church fathers. And he had this this idea, he had this concept that he talked about wrongly ordered loves. He said, there are a lot of good things that we love out there. But if you put too much weight on the wrong loves, wrongly ordered loves leads to out-of-order lives. Your lives aren't as good as they should or could or would be. I'm seeing in my life right now, I wrongly ordered my freedom over my rest at the expense of my family, (laughs) you know? This idea of wrongly ordered loves impacts who we are and as we follow Jesus. He had this phrase that he would say that God is our chief and best good. And so his idea was that if we wrongly weight the things that we love, even if they're good things, our lives don't live into God's design for flourishment or goodness. It's chaotic. It's out of order. I think... We see that in our world because there's a lot of things to love out there. There's a, a polling company called Gallup. Every year they do something called the State of Global Emotions. And I'm going to quote them. They do this, they endeavor to quantify at the country level whether people are enjoying life and learning new and interesting things. And if the people feel well-rested or if they, people, people feel extreme stress, sadness, worry, or physical pain. So they came out with this poll last year, and they said 70% of people say that they smiled or laughed a lot the previous day. That might sound good, but it's a five-point drop from the year before. They said 40% of adults worldwide said they experienced a lot of stress the previous day, and that's a record high. They came to this conclusion. They said the world is sadder, angrier, and more fearful than ever before. We have wrongly ordered our loves. There's a class offered at Yale University. You can go online to Yale now and there's a bunch of free classes offered. And this one professor two years ago in 2019, pre-pandemic, said, students are really stressed out and I don't know how to deal with it, so I'm going to teach a course. And the course is going to be called the happiness course. And in April of 2019, she had 22,000 people take the course. It was the most popular course that they'd offered in 300 years at Yale. You can do it online, right? You don't have to be on campus pandemic hit. And what the pandemic did, what I saw at least, was that all these things that we valued the most got taken away, whether it was activities or whether it was working not in my house or whether it was going to movies, fill in the blank, even showing up on a Sunday morning in a building with other Christians. And so as we started to see that the things that we loved the most couldn't withstand the weight of our worry, we started to ask the question, we're not as happy as we thought we'd be. So in 2019, she had 22,000 people take the course. In 2020, 860,000 people took the course. To date, 3.1 million people have taken the course. Look, I don't probably prescribe how she defines happiness in that course, but I do think that can show us that we have a problem with how we ordered our loves in our world. Here comes fasting. So you say, Charlie, I'm gonna be happier if I'm hungrier? Well, not necessarily if you're anything like me, but I think what fasting can do, the beauty of fasting, is that fasting helps us cultivate a world we don't give into desires, but through discipline, we cultivate and curate the deeper desires of our heart, the deeper longings of the more important loves. And so what we're going to see today as we look into this idea of fasting is a couple myths about it, things we go about the wrong way, and a couple reasons about how we go about it the right way. So last week, we started talking about fasting and we talked about the idea that fasting fundamentally is put in place and Jesus practiced it and, and God said to do it in the Old Testament once and then that expanded as the people grew in their legalism. But, but God said to practice fasting because we have this battle with our flesh. You have these two desires, one that wants to do good things and one that wants to do bad things. Every religion tries to explain why those two things happen. The the Bible talks about that other desire in terms of our fleshly or our non-regenerative or the things that are antithesis of God, those desires. And so we said that fasting fundamentally fights our flesh. There was a a theologian and a church father in the 4th century named St. Basil of Caesarea, and he said, I refuse to constantly acquiesce to my body's control. I believe the spirit has other values and I wish to hear them. And I liked it. We came to the conclusion last week that fasting helps control your flesh so your flesh can't control you. And that's a good thing. It's a quote people commented on by John Mark Comer that I loved. It said, fasting is a way to turn your body into an ally in your fight with the flesh rather than an adversary. All right, So it's a good thing. But here's where he left off. Fasting simply to gain control of your desires is good. But if your motive isn't spiritual, it's not great. It's why in my upbringing with fasting, it wasn't talked about a whole lot, but I'll tell you when I knew fasting happened the most. In high school, around prom, bunch of Daniel fasts, all right? And when I got older, around wedding, bunch of Daniel fasts again. Let's do some vegetables and water. God is good. I know you need a miracle to fit into the suit and dress, but that's probably not the point of fasting in the first place, you know? So it brings into the idea where have, if we recognize the desire to beat back our flesh for the deeper loves in our life that God put in there, what are our motives? And throughout the scripture, when fasting is mentioned, we see some pretty bad motives. And then I think there's one story we're going to land on in Matthew 9 where Jesus calls us into new motives. So let's talk about the bad ones first before we get to the good. In the Old Testament, there's a couple different passages that talk about Israel in their fasting. I'm going to read a long-form version from Isaiah 58 to you. He's commenting on the people. God is. He's commenting on their desire for him, and he says this. They seek me day after day. They want to know my requirements like a nation that does what is right. They ask me for just decrees. They want to be near to God. These all sound good. It says in verse 3 of Isaiah 58, they lament. Why don't you notice when we fast? They're talking to God. Why don't you pay attention when we humble ourselves? Look, at the same time you fast, God says, you satisfy your selfish desires and you oppress your workers. Look, your fasting is accompanied by arguments, brawls, and fistfights. He says, do not fast as you do today. And this is why, trying to make your voice heard in heaven. And then he continues in verse 6 by saying, no, this is not the kind of fast that I wanted. What we're going to see is, is basically the two... Poor motivations for fasts are the two poor motivations for religion in general. And here's the first one. We do things because we want God to like us more. We do things because we want God to love us more. And really, when you look at the Old Testament, big picture, 30,000-foot view, God gave Israel these laws, these ways to practice out the presence of God in their everyday. 613 of them. And over time, what happened was, as they practiced them more and more and more, they divorced the personal from the legal side of things. They just did things because they knew they were supposed to, but they forgot the why behind the what. They lost the value of God in their laws. And so you get to this point in Isaiah. When they're looking at captivity, when life isn't going well, And they say, like any of us would, God, have been doing all these checkboxes to make you like me, and it's not doing anything. And God responds and says, you've missed the point. Your point of doing this was simply so that I might hear you more, but it's not changing who you are. It's not changing how much you love me. You are using me to get what you want. There's another example in Zechariah 7.5. So brief Old Testament history, God said, you're gonna be my people. But if you go against me, I'm going to give in, I'm going to give you your desires, and you're going to be taken over by bigger and badder and stronger countries around you. And that's the story of the Old Testament, post-Genesis 11, pretty much, is the Israelite people going in and out of captivity as they went in and out of relationship with God, with their supposedly best love and highest good. And in Zechariah 7, they're coming back from the Babylonian exile, it's been 70 years, and, and they send from Bethel to Jerusalem, they send this team of people, and they got back into their country, into their land. And they said in this text, they say that we asked, we asked, do we need to keep fasting every two two days every week for the like we've done for the last seventy years? Do we need to keep doing this now that we have the temple back? And God says this. Ask all the people of the land and the priests. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seven months for the past 70 years, was it really that you fasted for me? (laughs) So they said, we got what we want back. Do we need to keep doing this? And God says, were you doing it because you want to be close to me or because you wanted your home back? There's a difference in motive. Are we fasting because we want God to do something for me or are we fasting because we want God? It's subtle, but it's big. Are we fasting because we want God to love me more, like me more, give me more? And this is a problem I've seen with how we define and how we teach fasting is sometimes if we're not careful, fasting can be taught as something that will make God do more things for us. It's a formula that God might act and do the things that we want him to do. We use fasting as a method of manipulating God. Here's the problem with that. When it doesn't work, where are we left? If you need an answer from God and you fast for three days and you don't hear anything, whose fault is it when you're disappointed, yours or God? There's a story I heard years ago. There's an article. Uh, He was a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor. He just got married. I wasn't married yet. And (laughs) he said, my wife and I have chosen to stay celibate in marriage. And he said, if God loves celibacy outside of marriage, how much more will he love it when I'm celibate inside of marriage? And I thought, that's an extreme example, but let me tell you something. We have little moments where we do things like that for God to make God love us more because we're trying hard. And what happens is this practice of asceticism that set in, this idea that we're going to rigorously discipline our body so that God's happier with us. And and what you get is kind of the outlines of the extreme monastic movement in the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries where they said, I'm going to eat no food that tastes good. I'm going to sleep on uncomfortable things. I'm going to wear wool all the time, and I'm never going to speak because if I take pleasure in anything, God isn't taking pleasure in me. And the more pain that I have, the more love that God has for me. It's this disconnected view of, of God loving his people and loving the beauty of his people and loving the pleasure of his people. It's this idea that if we simply fast because we think God's going to hear us more when we're in more pain, it's going to bend the ear of God in some way, we've missed the heart of God, we've missed the grace of God. When fasting first got initiated in the Old Testament law, was Yom Kippur is one day in the law, one day a year, and it was only around the people recognizing the weight of their sin how much their sin cost them, how much their sin hurt them. And then over time, what happened was they started to institute another day and another day and another day. You get to Zechariah, there's four fasts a year. You get past that to the world of Jesus, and they're fasting two days each and every week just to show God how serious they are, just so God might hear them and do what they needed to do. It operates on a system of gain over grace. So when we talk about fasting... We have to start at this place where just because we fast, it doesn't make God love you anymore. It doesn't make him like you a little bit more. It doesn't make him hear your prayers any more than he would otherwise. Fasting is not a method for me or you to manipulate God's favor. In the Old Testament, that's what you see. It's that he used it. to say, God, now you have to do this thing because I did this thing a lot. Because at the end of the day, if we fast and we don't get the answer we want, we either try harder and we try harder and we try harder. Let me tell you what goes against the gospel of grace increased efforts to earn more of God. And so the Old Testament problem with fasting was a meritocracy for the favor of God. And then you move to the New Testament, and Jesus addresses it in Matthew 6. In Matthew 6, 1, he says this Be careful not to display your righteousness merely to be seen by people. Otherwise, you have no reward with your father in heaven. And here's where we get the second way that people manipulate religion, not just to manipulate God, but to motivate others to think I'm a great person. We use it to find favor with God or favor with people. This is all of the spiritual practices. You can find something that's really good, but unweighted good things aren't good things anymore. Good things that don't point towards their ultimate good are no longer good. And that can be said of fasting. That can be said of marriage. That can be said of having kids. That can be said of almost anything. And so Jesus says to these people... You have taken fasting and you've removed it from the purpose. And no longer are you using it that God might move. Now you're using it so that people might like you more and might think you're better than what you are. And so he says, when you do these acts, it's in this section where he's talking about fasting and he's talking about um, giving and he's, and he's talking about praying. He said, when you do these things, they're between you and God so that you might have more of God, not so that you might have more favor with people. He says, don't. And then he gets to fasting in verse 14. He says, when you fast, don't look sullen like the hypocrites, for they will make their, fasts, their faces unattractive so that people will see them fasting. I tell you, they have their reward. I think the problem when we make spiritual practices ways that people might like us more is we twist the concept of religion. One of my pet peeves is when people say that I don't like religion I don't have a religion, I have a relationship with Jesus. Hey, that, that's really true. And, and I think that's extremely important. The problem I have with that is religion was God's idea. When you go back to the Old Testament, what religion was, it was a set of principles and a set of rhythms and a set of practices that people practiced together so that they might remember that what held them together was God. That their best good was God. And so God gave them all these practices and said, live like this each and every day. This systematized set of rhythms that you have together so that you don't forget that I'm your center and nothing else is. The problem with religion isn't the fact that religion should point us to God. The problem is about religion is bad religion points us to people over God. And they can't withstand the weight of our worship and it comes crumbling down. And we blame religion in the meantime. Religion, by and large, if done well, reminds us that we need us to follow Jesus together. And in a heavily individualistic society, I need to be reminded there's more people than just me in this thing. I need to be reminded that I'm not the sinner. I need to be reminded that God isn't just in it for me. I need to be reminded that we are called to pursue Jesus together. That's what religion does. That's what we're supposed to do in the Old Testament. And so when he talks about religion here, I don't think he's trying to say don't do religious practices. I think he's trying to say let's reinterpret what they were supposed to be in the first place. I love what A.D. Bruce says about he's a theologian. He says, show when tempted to hide and hide when tempted to show when we do things like this. The idea that that when we fast, we got to flee from the two primary drivers that make it bad. I want to earn God and I want people to like me. I want to gain God and I want to gain the approval of those around me we got to fight those i've done a couple fasts in my life and it is hard for me every time i do i'm going to to tell everybody i know you know like charlie do you want to go to lunch today i would but i'm fasting you got to whisper it that's what makes it really hit home you got to breathe the holy spirit right into it so that people feel convicted you know it's hard it's not just a problem they had then, it's a problem I have today. I, I don't err as much on the side of gaining God's favor, but I, I do err on the side of wanting the favor of others because I'm an Enneagram 3, and that's how God wired me to be. So i got to fight that, you know? But so often we fast because we think God will love us more, like us more, hear us more. So then the question remains, if fasting isn't there so that God will do something for me or that others will like me more, what does what the purpose and practice of fasting do for us in the in the New Testament world? Jesus gets asked that question. Matthew 9, what we see is this idea of fasting in the scriptures. Because Jesus says at the end of that text in Matthew 6, you will have your reward, but if you fast the right way, you'll get your reward from the Father. So it lends ourselves to ask the question, what is the reward that comes with fasting? I love what C.S. Lewis says. He talks about reward in his book, The Weight of Glory. And he talks about the difference between Uh, good rewards and bad rewards. And he says, just because something has a reward doesn't make it intrinsically selfish. Right rewards are good responses for good things. And so he says, if you get married and you want your reward to be money, it's a bad marriage. If you get married and you want your reward to be love within the marriage, it's a good reward. So he has a quote and he says this, the proper rewards are not simply tacked onto the activity for which they're given, but are the activity itself in consummation. Every once in a while, I get the opportunity to marry friends. Sometimes I get paid, sometimes I don't, but I tell them that's not the purpose of why I do weddings. The purpose is because this moment is giving to my soul that I can be here for you. The reward is the fact that I get to, in this moment, say that God has ordained this marriage, and now go be an example of how God loves his people in your marriage. So Jesus gets asked the question. He says it in Matthew 9, 14, and 15. This is in all the synoptics. So then John's disciples came to Jesus and said, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? but your disciples don't fast. So you have this problem. John's disciples and the Pharisees, they didn't love each other, but you know, the enemy of my enemy. And so they get together and they said, I am starving myself two days a week. I'm starving myself. But this guy, Jesus, and his followers, they eat all the days. Why do they do that? This hurts me. It should hurt them. I want them to be miserable with me. I don't understand what's going on. So they go to Jesus and they say, why do I have to fast to God to like me, but you don't have to? And Jesus' response, he says, the wedding guests cannot mourn while well, the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken from them and when they will fast. Kind of an arrogant answer, but he's earned it. So he, he looks at these people and says, what, what do they have to fast for? I'm here. The point of fasting is to recognize that things aren't the way they should be, but here I am. And so I love this because I think there's three things from this we can pull in terms of right, correct, proper motive for fasting. And the first thing I think we see is that what fasting does, proper motivation for fasting is it helps us simply remember Christ. It simply helps us remember Christ in a world that's so easy to forget that we need God with all that we have. God's just not a good, he is the good. He's just not a love, he is the love that orders the rest of our loves. He needs to be at the top of that pile or your out-of-order loves will give an out-of-order world for you. I think what fasting does, first and foremost, is it makes us remember when we fast that we don't have everything we need. That's why he says to these people, I'm here, but I'm going to be gone. And when I'm gone, they're going to fast again. Because they're going to need to remember that I'm not with them anymore. In Deuteronomy 8, God is outlining what it's going to look like for his people in the the land he's going to give them. It's a big moment. He's going to give the Israelites land they've wanted for generations and generations and generations. And in Deuteronomy 8, he says to them, but here's what's going to happen. You're going to get fat and you're going to forget that I was good to you in the first place. And you're going to move away from me. Hosea 13 puts it like this. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. And then they forgot me. It's why when Jesus talks to the man that has a ton of money in the New Testament, he says, how can I get to the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, for a rich man to get to heaven, is harder than the camel to go through the eye of a needle. And he's simply saying there, it's really, really difficult to see that you have need when you have all that you want saying it's really difficult to remember that I'm your best good when your life is surrounded by goods. That's something we've been shaken by in the last two years in the pandemic. That's something living in a, first, uh, in, in a first world country in an affluent society that oftentimes we need to be reminded about. We're surrounded by goods. What's the best one? We're surrounded by loves. What can withstand the weight of all the other ones in our lives? Plantinga quotes it like this. The early desert fathers believe that a person's appetites are linked, full stomachs and jaded palates take the edge from our hunger and, our, and thirst for our righteousness. They spoil the appetite for God. It's said idea that what does fasting do? It helps us fundamentally to remember that Jesus isn't Remember Jesus. About a year ago, I'd get up with my kid in the morning, and she'd want to look at my phone. And you can do this on your phone. You can go to your phone, and you can pick the pictures, and then you can pick a person. And it will create a little slideshow to some really awful music. And it'll show you all the photos it has of you and this person, because they have, like, you know, the face-scanning technology, and they know everything about me already. And so my daughter would say, let's look at a slideshow of Mom. Mom. And you have three options. You can pick the short ones, 35 seconds, the medium one that's like a minute and a half, or the long one that's like three and a half minutes. And I'd pick the long one every time because it bought me more time to not be yelled at by my toddler. And I'd sit there every morning for like two months and we would watch on repeat, probably four or five times, a slideshow of every picture on my phone of me and my wife. And even though my wife was 25 feet away in our bedroom, it made me remember how much I love her because I got to remember, oh, that was really good. Oh, oh, I forgot forgot about that trip, you know? And she was there. We so easily forget that Jesus is good. And so what fasting does is it first and foremost reminds us of the goodness of Jesus in a world that often drowns it away because we're surrounded by so many other good things. Two, I think it helps us to not only remember Christ, I think it helps us to... uh, yeah, it helps us to, um, to look more like Jesus, to imitate Christ. Jesus fasted, and you've got to ask why he fasted, because he wasn't with the Father. I think it helps us imitate Christ in a couple different ways. First and foremost, throughout the Old Testament, and David writes about it in Psalm 69, he said, I'm humbled with my soul. Um, I humbled my soul with fasting. It, you see this idea that what fasting fundamentally does for people is it humbles you it reminds you that you don't have enough just for you. It reminds you that you need something to actually exist in this world. And let me tell you something, the most, the greatest, the, the, the biggest example of humility we have is Jesus leaving heaven and saying, I'm gonna come down here. Philippians 2 talks all about it. It says, you know what beauty is? God having all the things he needed as God, God being all resplendent and godlike in heaven, saying, like, I'm going to leave that behind and walk around on the earth where I'm underappreciated and dirty. You know that? Christ fundamentally humbled himself, and when we fast, we imitate Christ's humility. When we fast, we remember there's things outside of our control. When we fast, we remember that, like Jesus, we need something outside of ourselves when he was here. this is beautiful example that what fasting does isn't just remind us who Jesus was, it reminds us that we're supposed to look like Jesus, and it allows us to. So when we fast and our stomach's hurt, we get to say, man, Jesus suffered for me. When we fast and we want to eat, we get to say, man, Jesus pushed back on his fleshly desires so that I might do the same thing. When we fast, we look more like Jesus. When we fast, we remember that we don't just imitate his humility, we imitate his character. When he looks at Satan in his temptation and says to him, hey, man needs more than just physical bread. There's a better thing out there, the word of the Lord. Not because we worship the Bible, but because the Bible worships God. (laughs) And it says, this is what's worthy of your energy and effort and time and worship. This is good. And so what fasting does is it helps us fundamentally remember Christ. It helps us imitate Christ. But finally, I think fasting helps us anticipate Christ. It's what Christ meant when he said to these guys, hey, I'm going to go away, but there's going to be a time when I'm gone. And what fasting does is it will make you long for me to come back again. I love what one writer said, Christian fasting at its root is the hunger of a homesickness for God. Fasting reminds us that there's pain in the world and God's not done yet. Fasting reminds us that the world is broken and Jesus is coming back to finish what he started. Fasting reminds us that the end isn't here yet. Fasting reminds us that God is good and one day, one day there will be no pain. Fasting helps us anticipate the coming of Christ again. Because we don't want to just live in the pain of today and say God is good. We want to live in the pain of today with the promise of tomorrow. It helps us manage the pain of today. (laughs) The guy's not going to leave it that way. One of my favorite notes on fasting comes from actually Jesus. So you can find it in in Mark, but he's at the Last Supper with his disciples. And he says, This is my body and this is my blood. And and usually we're going to take communion next week. When we take communion, that's where we stop. But there's a line and mark after that where Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. So in the Jewish Passover ritual, there were four cups and the four cups uh, resembled a passage from Exodus 6, 6-7. through 7. The four cups resembled the different deliverances of God for the people of God in Exodus. That's why they did it every year when they came together for the Passover. And the first cup was, I'll bring you out of. The second cup was, I will rid you of your bondage. The third cup was, I will redeem you. And the fourth cup was, I will take for you my people. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Jesus was on the fourth cup, and he stopped short of the fourth exodus, the fourth promise, the fourth deliverance, and he says, I'm going to wait to drink this one until we finally drink it together, when finally I put this thing to bed forever, and you are my people, and I am your God perpetually. It's this beautiful idea that not only are we fasting and waiting, but so is Jesus. Not only are we fasting and waiting and anticipating, so is God. And every day that he gives us is a grace that we might find a deeper, richer, fuller version of him, that others might find him that don't know him. Every day is a grace, but we wait and God waits for the day in which we recognize the goodness of God in full. And when we fast, we remember Jesus and we get to imitate Christ and we get to anticipate his coming again. It's the hope of tomorrow and the pain of today. So what does fasting do? Fasting reorders our loves by focusing us on Christ, (laughs) fundamentally. Why do it? Because we live in a world with a lot of loves. Fasting reorders our loves by focusing on Christ, on who he was and who he is and who he promised he will be for us. Fasting refocuses our loves, the thing that really matters. It's really just, fasting is really just feasting on the person and promise of Jesus in our world. And in a world where so often we Don't weigh our loves in the right order. I need to be reminded what my greatest love is. And by fasting, we get to remember that. And so, we said it last week, we'll say it again. It's a spiritual practice. Uh, I think we have different practices that we talk about, we'll continue to talk about. It's one that we invite people into. We don't make you do a three-day fast to join CBC. It's not a requirement in CBC 101, (laughs) All right? We, We simply say, this is a practice or a tool that God uses to help us look more like Jesus. Join us. If the Holy Spirit urges, join us. We don't force it or mandate it, but we say we think God can use this to make us more like Jesus together. So let me just give you some really practical applications. The first application is, man, I think you should try fasting in your day-to-day life. <laughs> if you didn't see that coming, you have not been listening for the last 37 minutes. But but, but let me... Cushion that with. It does not have to be a 40-day fast. You do not have to make your two-year-old fast. Please don't do that for the sake of the community, right? I think some practical advice on fasting is simply start small. Skip a breakfast one day a week. Skip breakfast and lunch when you get comfortable with that. One day, maybe don't do breakfast and lunch, but just drink juice. I think there's a lot of grace in how we fast. I think we should absolutely start small and then make a plan. So it doesn't do any good to make a fast. And while you're not eating at Cain's for lunch, you're thinking about eating at Cain's for lunch. It doesn't do a whole lot of good. So what we do is we say, hey, when we fast and this happens, here's some scriptures I'm going to read here's what I'm going to pray. That's how prayer and fasting go together really well because it helps us refocus on Jesus. And that's what prayer is, focus on God in all of the places in my life. And so when we talk about fasting, we start small and then we make a plan for what it's going to look like when I get hungry. What am I going to do instead of the time? A couple of leadership books and quotes that I like always talk about how if you don't make a plan, what's urgent fills in and overtakes the important. <laughs> And so if you don't make a plan or a time which is urgent, your hunger is always urgent, will trump prayer, which is more important than fasting. So make a plan for that. I'll tell you what I'm going to start doing. I'm going to start picking one day a week and fasting that day, probably Thursdays, we'll see, um, in the morning and in the evening, probably not at night, just because I want to eat dinner with my family. And in those moments, I'm going to seek God. I'm going to pray that God might show me more of Jesus. I'm going to pray that God might use that to give me more of an affection for the hurting in this world. I'm going to pray that God might use our church to do the same thing. I'm going to pray that he might make Jesus my first and best love in the order of all my loves, because that's what fasting does. It reorders our loves by refocusing us on Jesus. And finally, i I fast with others. Not like, you know, I'm going to post on Facebook to tell everybody and join me and make a comment on how spiritual I look today. But Find a friend. Say, man, I'm going to do this today, and when I get really hungry, at like 7.02 in the morning, I'm going to text you <laughs> and send me some encouragement and say, don't do it, man, it's not worth it. I'm coming over. But I'm not fasting, so I'm going to eat a breakfast burrito. But you shouldn't. <laughs> I think that we look at that scripture in Matthew, and he's like, I've got to do it by myself, and nobody can know about it. I don't think that's true at all. I think we're called to pursue Christ together corporately, I think we're stronger together. Jesus thinks that too, so does the New Testament. And then finally, we give grace. So try, if you fail, you fail. The good thing is, we don't fast to gain God. We fast to press into his grace, (laughs) you know? And so we want to be a people that fast together so that we might focus more on Jesus together. I think in a world of a lot of loves, focus is a superpower, you know? Because so many things pull us apart from the real good stuff. I think every time you've seen a movement of God, like a big movement of God, the one thing you have in common is the people that are focused on the goodness of God, are focused on the kingdom of God, on how the ways and the rhythms of Jesus impact who they are every single day so that others might see that too. That's what fasting does for us. Might we be a church in a world of good, in a world of a lot of loves, that remember that Jesus is our greatest love? And might we be a church that fasts to remember that too? Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful that you've given us practical ways in your scripture to to fight some of the ways that we fight against becoming more like you. That you've given us practices and disciplines to just be able to follow you closer and to filter out some of the ways that we miss your goodness and see it more clearly. I pray that as we, as a church, continue the conversation on fasting, Holy Spirit, just give us conviction around fasting, that we might try it. We might call others into it. Not to gain favor or approval, but just to gain more of Jesus. And remember that he is our first and greatest love. May we we'll be a church that remembers that. Because when we do that, people will see the beauty of God in our world. And we'll see his kingdom grow. We pray these things in his name. Amen.